Hello everyone and welcome to Beyond the Iron Sea, the podcast that shares Tim's relief that after a year of looking after young children, he finally has a different kind of number one on his hands. <laughs> we come to you as the news is still sinking in that Strangeland, the band's fourth album, has gone straight to number one, making it their fourth number one album. And of course, the fifth time they've topped the album chart overall when you include the Night Train EP. Uh, topping the album chart five times with your first five eligible releases in the first week of release is a feat matched only by the Beatles, which is pretty impressive. Nice one. So today, after seven days of having the record in our ears, we'd like to give you our thoughts on it. We'll have some chat about where the band are headed after their latest change of direction. And looking back at a memorable night at the BBC where the band played the first post-release gig. So that's today's Beyond the Iron Sea. Beyond the So, the time has come, after all this time, three years, and quite a few months as well, for us to give our thoughts on our first listen to Strangeland. Um, Quite exciting, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's going back to the first time that we heard Perfect Symmetry, when we were downstairs in 229, and the novelty of listening to this on my turntable in my lounge with a cup of tea was it was nice and it reminded me of the first time I heard um, my Hopes and Fears CD in my my student uh, bedroom at university where you properly set set aside time to listen to it and do nothing else and just properly listen to the record exactly yeah yeah it's it's, it's quite nice it's nice when an album's an event and and, you know obviously as big Keen fans yeah definitely a Keen album is, is a massive event yeah I mean I know as I think we said before, it did it did leak before releases, all releases do. Um, but I'm I'm glad it wasn't sort of a throwaway sort of, you know, chuck in chuck onto my iPod quickly, get the proper quality copy, and, and you know. Um, so yeah, good. So what did you think then? <laughs> yeah, it's it's very good actually. Um, I am. Um, I don't want. Th- I don't. Sorry, I don't want to sound like that was a surprise. It's um, it is very good. Um, I think in, it's a very polished album in every way, very meticulously put together, as you'd expect from a time that's a perfectionist like Tim has spent so much time over. But that, that goes for the physical bits, which I just wanted to mention. I think the, the book is fantastic. It's the best edition of the album that I own. Um, the story is great. It's, it complements the work, and it's so many of the extra bits around this album, like the disconnected video and this book, are, are works of art in their own right. And the vinyl is beautifully put together as well. Oh, I'll, ha- I'll have to see if I can walk out with that when I, when I leave. <laughs> um, in many ways, actually, this record feels a bit like the completing of a circle. Like we've en- we've come back to where we were. Do you think? That makes sense. Okay. Um, but having with the sense that of a journey travelled, I think thematically with the songs about Bexhill, about um, those thoughts of leaving town when you're younger. Um, there's echoes of hopes and fears in there. Um, sonically, of course, people ev- everyone has gone on about this record being a return to the sound of hopes and fears. Yeah. Which, you know, I guess we'll talk about that a little bit later. It's, you know, it's a very easy headline. It's, you know, it's not necessarily entirely true. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that you say it's a circle. What I thought is it actually is, seems more like an elastic band, you know, in years of stretching out and in, into different directions, finally sort of, you know, they've not reached breaking point, but, you know, the, they've bounced back and brought 
you know, to where they started from and brought back everything they had with them. And and yeah, I mean, one th- I don't know if you saw the uh, webcast, uh, the Love Film webcast, but I, I saw that Tom said that it's, they're quite reactionary and every record is a reaction to the last one and they'll effectively do the opposite. Um, and like after so much experimentation, it feels like, you know, they've just sort of, they're being experimental by not experimenting. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting, I think, because... Or being audacious by not being audacious. Because I think the past records, you know, every first single has always blown you away by yeah. being something very different, you know, and having... You know, every, every record has been audacious, and this isn't audacious in the slightest. And attempt to, you know, attempt to shock, whereas I think this... This is the first time they've actually wanted to say we could do that again if we wanted to, mm. but actually let's let's concentrate on making the most compelling album that we as a unit can make. This is o- in some ways this is the first album I think that Keen have done, which isn't a concept album in some ways. All the others have been so tightly bound to one particular theme, and you know, despite you saying you know this is a, a coming home record in in so many ways, I I think don't think it feels that conceptual compared to the other ones, which no. is really interesting. I think that I think the lyrical themes are there throughout, but it feels as though it's uh, a jazz musician returning to an old riff that uh, was was well worn on their way up, if that makes sense, rather than it being a theme that has been deliberately stretched through the record. I think it's interesting what you said about the about the first single because I think it was Tim when we were back in the old back in the old place in the squat when he was saying that the reason why. Um, spiraling was put out there suddenly and abruptly on the web for a free download was they just wanted people to go wow what the hell is that and tellingly I think he said we really wanted to get on Radio 1 mm. and Radio 1 won't go near them for this this record I think their audience is not the audience that listens to Radio 1 anymore as we said on the last podcast Radio 2 has been the you know the, the most the, the biggest supporter of the band now and I think you know there's a, re- a realisation that actually that's you know they have to play to the audience there's a, almost a sense of knowing your place if that if that doesn't sound condescending or anything no 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 I don't <laughs> think it, I, I don't think it does it's just you have to remember as well I mean we you know we went to go and see this um, band when we were what 21, 22 and we're really into that then you know we're all a lot older and not necessarily wiser now but um Kids, kids aren't necessarily into this. I mean, I've seen Tom giving interviews where he says, you know, our job is to, you know, um, put everyone right about the state of the charts and so on. And if he thinks that, then great. But you know, charts mm. are charts, aren't they? It's yeah. There was a funny co- quote at the top of uh, this week's pop bitch, actually, which was that uh, Tom from Keen quoted as saying, "I turn on MTV and it's just a load of noise." <laughs> Old man Chaplin. Yeah, and all fat, all keen fans to go with it. So you know, move with the times. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but no, I don't. Th- I don't think it's a uh, an outdated or dull record by no. any means. In, in in some ways, it's the most. It's upbeat and bright. Yeah, I don't know. I I haven't quite. Got, I mean, I thought there would be. I mean, it's quite strange to hear a record after Perfect Symmetry and The Night Train that is doesn't have all those crazy influences. You know, I expected. You know bits from China to be in there or perhaps yeah. some, some some of the rap stuff um, but you know it, but in some ways it's like that never happens and you know th- this is almost like 
their third album. You could well, you well yeah. see it fitting in the chronology there. I was going to say something very similar, that I think this would have been a very logical album to release after Under the Iron Sea. And I really hope that some of the audience who were left cold by Perfect Symmetry can come back to it. And that, I, I think it has, has been relatively well received. But I think the, o- the, the one sort of connecting thread through all the reviews are that we've come to expect them to experiment on everything. And now that they've gone back to their old sound, it couldn't possibly hope to get a good review because w- we had this idea that this is a very conservative band and they've actually spent the last five years experimenting. But now we can finally, after all this time, our conceptions of the band can be confirmed for us. And I think that's probably why it's not had as such positive reviews as the older, you know, as, as the um, the first time out with Hopes and Fears and then mm. the slight experimentation of the last records. Mm. I mean, I think it's quite interesting that the band said they wanted to make a classic album. Um, do you think they've achieved that? Do you think it is a, a classic album? I don't know. I I genuinely I don't know because I don't know. I th- I there are several bands I love that I think have made classic albums, which you know that people will never have heard of them. In well, people probably haven't heard of them now, um, you know. But it's so hard to tell, isn't it? And I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think a classic album is sort of such a personal thing. It's defi- it's defined more than the music, but more about the whole time. And I think I think you know hopes and fears was the right place at the right time, and actually they acknowledged that uh, fairly recently for sort of the first time that you know they'll probably never have a record like hopes and fears because it, it at that time you know there was all there was quite a lot of events going on you know they the, they benefited from Live Aid and Tsunami concert and they benefited from supermarkets starting to so- stock CDs and having that audience they benefited from that being fashionable at the time. They benefited, I think, from the fact as well they had um, an album full of hits as well, which yeah. all, which well, often uh, helps. But, but my point is, regardless of the contents of the, the album, in some ways, the, the fact that it was released at that time, it, you know, it was something new and something different and something fresh at a time when I know at the time that you know you had James Sanger doing interviews where he said I created the band as a a male band version of Dido, which. I think we can probably all agree isn't necessarily an accurate representation of the ramblings uh, man. But I, th- I think we might need to clear that last comment with the lawyers. <laughs> you can probably bleep that out, I think, and we'll, we'll be okay. Um, shall we talk a little bit about the... Um, well, I just want to talk about some of the individual effort on, on the record. The production, for a start, I think uh, Dan Grecki is mostly... It's mostly kind of hands-off, which is funny, seeing as... Yeah, I mean, th- that's the thing. I listened to the album and go, oh, that that was a different producer. I didn't feel that at all, really. I mean, would you fancy ordering Tim Rice Oxley around? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I, uh, one thing I would say for it is I think it probably feels a bit more... Th- the sound of it is a sort of almost more live and less compressed. I mean, I think other albums have been very, you know, sort of heavily compressed and felt very close to you, whereas this feels a bit more, I don't know if, if the microphones were Expansive li- literally a bit further away from, from the instruments, but it feels more like it's recording a room than recording individual instruments directly into the input. It feels like yeah. it's picking up a more of a 
more of a vibe. And uh, in some ways, I think that's might maybe Jesse's influence as well because yeah. um, I think where he comes from, that's probably more the way that you do it. You mean East Anglia? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think uh, something that surprised me a little bit was the. And I know this goes back to the, the sort of the musical sound that you know the, the, what the, they were aiming at. But I think R- Richard's drumming is a little bit more conservative here. I mean, aside from On the Road, where he decides to fulfil all of his um, power ballad drumming dreams, um, <laughs> there's you know um, beats that have sort of echo like the fills from Everybody's Changing. There's these Ringo style uh, fills on uh, Watch How You Go, which we'll come to when we talk about each mm-hmm. track. Um, but yeah, else I think I think Jess, like Jesse's influence is, is clear. Mm. Um, and I think Tom's vocals are, are probably better than they were on the last two releases, purely on the basis that the slower tempos suit him. Um, I think he was, you know, sometimes he was like gabbling through songs on the last couple of records to try and, you know, fit the kind of musical template that was handed to him. Whereas this, I think, gives him a lot more opportunity to give us a properly awesome vocal. I mean, one thing one thing I wrote down in in my uh, in my notes when I was listening to it is that it seems I think his style is probably more light than you know the sort of vitriolic style we had on the NC and Pepper less explicitly Richard. confrontational. <laughs> yeah, and in some ways that I think that mirrors the whole album. I mean, I, I also you know I also wrote down this is the first album Keen would play for their kids. If you know their kids said, "Daddy, were you in a band?" That's the first album they'd hand them. I, I like I like the thought. But I mean, it's not like you know Tom was cursing Daddy, his way. Why, Daddy, why <laughs> have we got eight hundred keyboards in the back room? <laughs> Just one final um, word on uh, Dave Pridman, who um, the band went to record at his studio for a little bit last uh, last winter, spring kind of time, I think. Um, and I'd completely forgotten about you know about that until I was reading through the liner notes, and I think you and I were talking on Twitter about this that I'd completely forgotten about it. and obviously you know a lot of his bits didn't get none of the bits they recorded at the studio got kept but some of his sort of programming ideas were kept oh is that right okay at least based on what I've read in the liner notes which I thought was quite interesting and there is a there is a little bit more of that sparkle Dave, Dave Fridman um, uh, Associated Acts uh, The Flaming Lips Mercury Rev um, he has been criticised for being one of the the reasons why the loudness war really took off that he had that, that idea of making everything ultra loud and comp- you, well like Keen were in 2004 mm. um, but I mean, he and the two songs he worked on do stand out on the album a little bit I think Sovereign yeah. Light Cafe and On The Road yes and as I said on Twitter I think they, they have that kind of sparkle that I associate with his um, with his records um, it's It'd be interesting to see how it would have been if he'd have produced the whole record, but I'm assuming that it just didn't quite work out properly with him if uh, they ditched the uh, ditched those sessions and just kept some of his ideas. Hmm. Perhaps, yeah. Keen Top Tips. Fool fellow gig-goers into thinking you're George Osborne by bobbing your head uncomfortably into their camera lens whenever you think you're in their shot. Beyond so then let's go track by track through this thing let's do it uh you are young chris yeah so i I, my first thing was that this is actually quite a slow start to the album it's uh it's a slow burn 
that, yeah, that's probably a good way of putting it, actually, because obviously once it gets going, you know, and, and you, I think the more important thing is once you know what's coming, it's a great song. But first listen, you kind of are left a bit underwhelmed because the chorus is obviously the big refrain. Yeah, I think the um, it feels almost a little bit dull on that first listen. And I, I thought the very first time I heard it that it's... I At the time I heard it, you know, I wasn't sure sort of how it was going to fit into the record mm. and... I wasn't sure how everything was going to sort of work out, and obviously the first time they played Bexhill, because you don't until you get to the title, you don't know what song it is and where it's going to fit in with the record and everything. But then it sort of layers up into something that's quite brilliant. And hmm. um, as you were saying, that refrain that is going to be a big test of Tom, you know, because it's going to it's it's going to be a test of how he can get a crowd into a song. That's probably not going to be a single. It's the the fantastic kind of refrain outro kind of bit. Mm. It's just um, with a big crowd, it'll be absolutely phenomenal. And I've seen him now the second night at, at, at Bexhill and at the BBC Radio Show, which we'll talk about after this. Yeah. Um, people really get into that, despite the fact that it's a new song, and it's it's a fantastic kind of live song, I think. And I think it is actually a great opener. I mean, uh, first time I thought, oh, this is a bit slow. St- you know, you wouldn't open with this. Yeah. But actually, it really, really works. Um, yeah, I think I think, it, I think it's a it's a great piece of music. It, you know, as a song, it doesn't stand on its own, but I think it works in, in the context of a, of, a, of a record or a set or something. Yeah, definitely. Um, Silence by the Night next. Um, it's a... Uh, I, I, I quite like this as the single because it's a nice way of saying, hey, we're back and we've brought some slightly different sounds with us. Um, it's It echoes some of the bands who came through with the band in 2004. Um, you mentioned the, the key online, didn't you, Chris? Yeah, I mentioned it's in uh, D-flat, which is quite an unusual key. And uh, I think the only other songs I could really think of were um, Shiver by Nathalie Brulia. And Good uh, song. And Mr. Brightside by uh, Killers. Two fantastic singles right there. And here I think we have a third. I mean, okay, I mean, it's the reason why I think it's a good it's a good single, but uh, it's not necessarily a, you know, a standout song for all time. It's, it's, quite, it's quite shallow. I think it's a little bit obvious lyrically. I mean, it's a fun kind of on-the-road kind of song, you know, mm. recalling that kind of road trip kind of sense. Um, but yeah, as a lead single, I think it's it, it does its job, and I think people would have heard that and been like, "Wow, they're you know this is the this is not the band." No that messing releasing. around with funny eff- effects; it's just a song. Yeah, there's no you know, <laughs> no gimmicks. Exactly, there isn't you know Tom shouting, "Do you want to be a winner?" or Kane on um, putting his elbow in, and not that those were bad things, obviously. But I just think for for your average Radio Two listener, would be you know ears pricking up at that. Mm. It's a, re- a really good lead single, I think. Yeah. Um, I think Disconnected. Um, it's slightly... The character and tone has changed a little bit from when we first heard it live. Oh, definitely. I mean, I I think the video... I didn't quite understand it until I've listened to, to the record a few more times. And the record absolutely has that sort of slightly macabre sense to it. I think the video is absolutely perfect for that song. Mm. Which I didn't, I didn't think because, as you, as you, you know, alluded to, that the the song when we first heard it live was a very sort of sweet, 
sort of travesty sort of thing like a bit like you know in the sort of later albums with sing it was like something like that where it sort of turned around but actually this is a this has really got something kind of a dark sense looming yeah I, well i think you're you're definitely in the right ballpark there it's that synth sound um it's not quite the cornerstone of the song in the way that those live bootlegs suggested it's i like the word it runs through the middle portion of the track mm. and there is there's a slightly sort of like more sinister element to it if i can if a slight sort of synth motif can be sinister but um i also like the way the the percussion sort of beefed up a bit more in the uh, in that that last bit as well that it's it feels like it's got a little bit more weight to it which i guess takes it away from the territory that you're talking about that kind mm. of you know I mean it, thing yeah virgin radio territory yeah but and, I mean, in some ways, it could have been this album's nothing in my way, but it it avoided that yeah, by yeah. having a bit of. It is a close cousin of nothing in my way. Yeah, I think the, uh, the only thing that you could improve it is if that synth was actually a theremin. That do, you, do you know any theremin players who could have appeared on the album, Chris? That would have given extra spookiness. <laughs> so watch how you go. Um, I, I wrote down. I, I think you're going to reference exactly the same band that I did. I just wrote <laughs> Beatlesy. Yeah, it's. Um, at Bexhill when I was I was tweeting things through the show because I have a very short attention span. Um, I had said that Paul McCartney's lawyers were probably uh, standing at the door waiting to serve. Um, yeah, it's clearly very Beatles inspired. The I said before the drum fills, um, that they, they just are pure Ringo. Um, Lots of tom toms, yeah. It's yeah, as but for for me, I mean that this the first time I listened to the record, it just feels like. It's not a bad song. It's not the wrong song. It's a very nice song, and I do li- I do like it. But it, it should be track eleven. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like it should have been switched with. Um, they will come or something. Uh, well, I don't know. It's I'm. So, I think maybe we're we're becoming conditioned to think that albums should be front loaded with all these big songs up front, and these sorts of more reflective songs should be stuffed away towards the back of records. I'm amazed they've got away with it because, as you said, the, the tendency in America is to front load your songs as you know they had a different track listing for Hopes and Fears. Yeah, and and it's amazing that they've got away with that now. Um, it's uh, just to talk a little bit about the lyrics. I think Tim's um, been saying that it's a song about lovers, and uh, well, actually, I'm not suggesting anything here, but it does make me think of the kind of conversation that Tim and Tom might have when they decide to disband and go <laughs> their separate ways and. Um, leave the band behind. You think that would be the montage on, on the 10 o'clock news when it's announced? I don't think they're going to get a montage on the 10 o'clock news when they split up. But yeah, it's it just it strikes it strikes me as being a a wistful look back at the great times we've had, which is not the traditional kind of breakup material. If you see what I mean, mm. it's a, you know breakup material is usually we done had a row and mm. yeah. Um, I mean, it's quite slow and, and plinky. I can't remember too many other songs that have that sort of... I call it sort of core player piano with just that really, really simple piano playing. One of the great things about Tim is he plays the piano in a, in a very different way to other people, like yeah. a guitar. And this is like someone who's not that great at playing the piano plays the piano, which is, you know, obviously he can, but uh, it's, it's quite strange to hear that on a Keen record, I think. And it's not just on this song. It's on a few songs, which is why I mention it, but... Uh, Oh, interesting. All feeds into the, that effort for s- simplicity. 
mm. or certainly more simplicity than there was before. You're probably right. Um, Sovereign Light Cafe is the song that we've heard for the longest. It's bloody old now. Three, three or four years now, isn't it? Yeah, Tim has children that are not as old as this song. You think? Um, <laughs> it's it's got a twinkling quality to it. Um, it it does sort of shine as though it's been buffed up nicely. It's it's what as we were saying before about Dave Fridman that it does rem- re- reminded me of some of you know it reminded me of some of his work, and that was the point at which I actually looked at the liner notes, ah. um, sort of put things. Together, that's a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, I wrote great vibe, and I just love that um, the outro sort of synth. I think it's like an arf. I'm sure we'll have to get Mars on again, and he can tell us what all those instruments are. But yeah, I think it reminds me. It reminds me of the uh, the solo of Sunshine. You know that sort of synth. Sort of oh synth. yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. So yeah, I mean, the only thing I can say against this song is the, the sha la 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 lyrics, which yeah. is. No, I mean everything else. Sha la 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 di day. Everything else about the song is brilliant, and that just lets it down for me a little bit. Yeah, Nine no, I, actually, I know 10. what you mean. It kind of, yeah, the first time you hear that, it's a little bit, uh, you know. In in a funny way, though, I mean, we should probably say this. I, I think I do find uh, Tim's. There's something about Tim's writing that I do find. The first time you listen to it, you go what, and then actually, it tends to grow on me quite a lot. I think some of his melodies can be quite childish in some ways, but actually. That's probably what makes them such earworms and you know so so addictive. Yeah, and that's you know a great quality to have. You know, I've, I've had so many of these songs. I haven't listened to the album that many times, but I've had so many of these songs in my head. Yeah, in the past week. Yeah, definitely. Um, just one more word actually about the songwriting. Just more about the lyrics. That I think we've discussed this before. Um, because as I said, it's a bloody old song now. But um. I just I like the fact that this is Tim writing about something that he's seen or he could see mm. rather than about something that one feels or could feel mm. if that makes sense and uh, I like I like that it lends that personal kind of touch to it and obviously they've been playing it for all it's worth with the album artwork and the the video for this this is going to be the next single mm. off this record which they is going to be out the video uh, recently didn't they they did down in in Bexhill last weekend um I uh, I've been away all weekend, so I've not had a chance to sort of like catch up on any of that. But I know that they they were filming down there, and this is going to be out I think in the third week of June. But don't uh, bollock me if I'm wrong. But yeah, I I think it's it's pr- it was the obvious choice of the the next single. So on the road, um, I'm all over the piano sound here. I don't know if this is Dave uh, Fridman again. We're probably giving him far more credit than he's worth. He probably just you know said, you know have a cheese board in the studio or something that was his input that was his that was his additional programming um yeah I'm, i i it's a supremely silly song it's um it's fun it's lots of fun but i mean the drum break the I tempo tom like racing through the words like someone broke into the studio and pointed a gun at his head um it's yeah it's fun yeah, uh, this is probably one where you would put it a little bit earlier in the album, being you know such a front load of all track. But yeah, you know, this is one where you would expect to see it higher. I was just thinking back the other day, actually. Do you remember the YouTube clip of Tim and Jesse playing drums in the studio? I think that might have been this song, but I haven't gone back to check. And you know, that's sort of it is a very fun and infectious song. It's a song for dicking around to. Yeah. Um, 
Which is it's fun actually. I mean, if an album that could have been quite uptight in you know trying to be the best, the classic record, and it's nice that there's there's room for some exuberance on there and some an element of being carefree, which is you know what what if they're talking about going back to their youth, then there needs to be a carefree <laughs> element to the album, and and you know that is it in spades, I think. Um, just to get this out of the way, I really hate Queen. Good. Um, the starting line then. Yes. Um, I have got a massive hard-on for <laughs> xylophone <laughs> glockenspiel. Please don't edit that out, out of context because, I mean, that would just be awful. Um, anything anything in that kind of vibraphone area. Celeste. Celeste. I mean, a struck, a struck idiophone. Very that, good. that is where it's at, the struck idiophone. Yeah, so I, I mean, that's probably why I was thinking that this is an album Key would play for their children because it does have that sort of childlike innocence dangled all over so, you know signs by the night starting line there's a few other tracks where there's this sort of twinkly twinkly keyboards as well but i mean t- to me the the thing about this is it's such a 90 <laughs> 90s power indie anthem i mean this is when i heard noel gallagher's solo album last year this is what i thought it would be on it yeah you know this is what i thought it would have in spades actually yeah for um I can't probably repeat what I was about to say about, you know, the thoughts uh, that Tim has had about Noel Gallagher before. Um, but, it, you know, it is, it's a piece of Noel Gallagher-esque songwriting, I think. It's a and that's a compliment of the highest order. Very much so, very much so. It's, it is simple, but so appealing, and it's a, brilliant, a brilliantly written song. It just gets under your skin so much. <laughs> um, I think it would be, it'd be a crying shame if this doesn't make it to be a single at some point hopefully coinciding with some dates that they'll have in the back end of the autumn slash winter over here in the UK. Mm. Um, it's quite strange, though, that it does have that Oasis sound, and yet the intro would put off anyone. It would give you the wrong idea. Cause oh, yeah, soft lads. A bit, it's a bit, of a, a bit of a slow start, but that uh, the chorus is so epic. And Tom Tom's vocal, this is, yeah. this is the sort of thing that I think he's probably one of a handful of people in, in music could do that justice and you know it's it's a great vocal it really is i think if we're talking about cousins on the album i think that this is the cousin of a bad dream it's 10 times better than a bad dream hmm. so I, I i often think you know what will be on the best of keen when you know that day does come yeah uh <laughs> i think i think the starting line will probably be on there yeah definitely and i think it will probably be Unless, th- unless they do that chronological thing that Pulp did on hits, yeah. I would imagine it'll probably be towards the front of that record as yeah. well. But again, I mean, I think this this will depend on how people take it to their hearts, and you know, we'll probably talk a little bit more later about about sort of festivals they're doing. But it, I could well see that having a, a bit being a big hit at the festivals and perhaps even at sporting events this summer. You know, it could be a could it be a England get knocked out kind of. Match of the month? No. I would think the starting line might have more resonance at the Olympics. Hmm. Maybe. Okay, Black Rain was my favourite live song from the Bexhill shows. That's interesting. Um, this probably doesn't quite live up to it. It's um, strange because I, I would have said this is the least live song <laughs> on the album. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, particularly the, um, the, the vocals out in the back half. Um, you know, Tim goes to all the effort of getting himself castrated so that he can produce those vocals. 
and live they sound brilliant and the whole literally you you um look up on youtube the the video of black rain that um we put up i can do that now um yeah. and when Tim is producing those vocals towards the end of Black Rain, you can actually hear people gasping when they realise that it's him singing. Genuinely, look it up. It's incredible piece of, of vocal gymnastics that um, Richard assures us is 100% live. I mean, this is... I, mean, I know you're going to say Radiohead, so let's just get it out of the way. Okay, back in 2005... Justin Hawkins from... Do you remember that sketch show called The Darkness? That <laughs> They went out on a live tour. Um, oh, yeah. He called the band uh, Poppy Radiohead in the... I think it's the press conference for, like, the Reading and Leeds, I think, something like that. Um, and it's only taken them seven years to actually make that description accurate because, as you can say, it's, you know, that it's that drum sound. Uh, just And just sort of the experimental nature with the falsetto, it's... Uh Especially yeah, for falsetto plus that's you know that that particular beat. Mm. There's some there's something of the Smashing Pumpkins as well, which also is in in your own time as well. But we'll come on to that. <laughs> Stop going on about the Smashing Pumpkins, Chris. You're never going to meet them. I just love them. <laughs> um, actually, I hate the fade out as well. I love yeah. the song, but I, I I wish I don't know. There's something there's How something of a cop out about fade outs. How does it end live? Do um, they all just walk away from the stage. Yeah, they, the power gets cut off. Um, no, it's it's it comes to a very dignified conclusion. <laughs> if, if that's the best way I can put it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is a very good point at which to go on to Neon Rain. Okay, Neon Rain wow. is the best song on Strangeland. I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I'm not a fan of... I've, I've been quite outspoken I think in, in actually speaking out against my shadow that I'm not a fan of that song and I think it's t- trying to sound too much like U2 and not enough like Keen. I think Neon River takes the best elements of what they're trying to do by sounding like U2 which is you know a big anthem and or you know whatever that U2 thing is but keeps enough Keen to and enough Keen brilliance to, to just make this such an amazing song. Yeah. I, I can't get over this. The the vibe is brilliant. The there was that a video which had the that underlying synth, the 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 lifeblood that flows through the song, was on one of the the studio videos. The of time course, lapse. yeah. Um, and one of the things actually that this is one of the reasons why I love it. I think the songwriting, lyrically, is the um, it's brilliant. It's there's there's more of that real evocative stuff that you can picture. You can, you know, as as people who live in London, we can almost look through Tim's eyes and see what he's seeing. Well, uh, do you know, I, I I knew that Chris and I both we grew up. We didn't grow up in London. We don't sound like we grew up in London. Maybe I do, but um, Chris definitely doesn't. We both grew up outside of London, and a lot of people of our generation feel that they have this. It's a necessity to go to the city because that's where the jobs went to. That that's where life went to. That we yeah. all end up gravitating to London. And I know people who didn't want to, who who stayed at home. So I've ended up with two homes, one in London and one back in, well, in Cheltenham in my case, in I guess Middlesbrough in Chris's case. And where is home for us? And this lyric kind of taps into that kind of feeling. And I, I go home and I see people who never moved away. 
and I can see that sort of reflection of a different life that could have been, you know, it could have been something that we would have lived. And in that context, there's a real romance to that song of the, you know, the excitement and romance of doing something different, but the excitement as well of your dreams at home. It's, I, I just think it's fantastic. It's a brilliant song. Mm. I mean, I haven't listened to the lyrics in quite that much detail, but I would say this is probably one of the the most sort of dreamy songs. I just sort of you get caught, totally lost in it, and it's just it's just amazingly evocative and and just grabs you. I mean, the the, the run the line about running on Stamford Hill, you know, that just gets me every time. You know, that's just amazing. And yeah, I, I'm I'm gushing a little bit now, but um, <laughs> I once went to an NHS walk-in centre on Stamford Hill. Good trivia. <laughs> and then, to, and then to top it off, um, there's a, there's a little who wig out at the end, as, which yeah. is just like not what you expect from the it's song. That whole pia- that whole piano bit, I think, is it's it's putting their stamp on it. It's so it's unexpected. It's it's experimenting it without experimenting, and it, it just it just comes so smoothly and naturally out of it. It's just. And that gives it an, again a dreamlike quality, you know. It's just it's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and that's you know, not not to compare it to hopes and fears too much, but uh, you get that a bit at the end of um, she has no time a little bit, and and that's the f- this is the first time for me that, you, that a keen song has picked up that thread of of just sort of getting absolutely lost in a song like that so deeply. Probably better cut the bit about the NHS walking centre. So then, um, enough, <laughs> enough of gushing about that. Day will come. This is the one that Tom said he wasn't that keen on. Yeah, I think the reason why Tom wasn't keen on it is that when you look at the context of the rest of the record, this would have fitted in very well on Perfect Symmetry. It feels like its nearest relation in their canon is again and again. I would have so. said put it behind you in some strange way. Oh, fuck, put it behind you. <laughs> Um, actually, what it sounds to me is like the blockbuster theme tune, <laughs> as as I keep going on about this. And yet, when we listen to them side by side, they don't actually sound that similar. But it does sound like the blockbuster theme it, tune. Yes, yeah, yeah, slightly. I see. I see roughly where you come <laughs> But um, this this one uh, to me, this sounds more like. I mean, we're talking about you know the bands that Keen grew up with. This could be a guitar band from two thousand and four somehow. Possibly. I d- I, d- I haven't quite seen it like that. I mean. It's it's something that is quite I don't know it feels almost slightly unique. I mean it does have that chugging bass which I think is pretty cool. But I, I I could I would struggle to think of a band who could have recorded it apart from them. If that makes sense. Um yeah. I mean I I love the verses. I tweeted some of the lyrics um that sort of stuck with me after Bexon. I love those verses and I think Tom's in great form and I I I guess you're probably not as sold on this as, as I am. But it's it's one of my favourite sort of up tempo tracks it, it, from the record. And being an up tempo track, I probably have to see it live in person and feel see how it makes me feel. But yeah, on uh, on record, I don't know. It's uh, I can't imagine being too devastated if it got if it'd been left off. But yeah, I don't know. It's not a bad song. It's 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 just uh, probably I it's in the context of the record. It's yeah, it, you can see why it was the last one put on. I I really like it. I kind of, you know, I can see why people might think it's not the right song for that bit in the record. Mm. Um, in, Fair y- in Your Own Time is the forgotten song of the record, I think. 
it's strange because this was one of my first favourites. See, I, I, I think it's fantastic as well. But the thing I was going to say is that the all the other songs on the record were played live, except for Neon River. Okay. Um, everybody had heard every other song, apart from Neon River and In Your Own Time. Um, Neon River being right. s- fantastic as it is, people were obviously going to gravitate towards that. And In Your Own Time is there, you know, peop- I haven't seen people saying, wow, this is a great song, this is one of my favourites. It's... Um, but it is a real standout, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a very, very tender song, and yeah, I mean, again, I think it has a sort of dreamlike quality to it. Yet, it actually, when you listen to it, it's quite rocky, and and it, it's quite interesting that, that it's that late in the album. Again, this is one that I would have thought would be nearer the front, with you know other ones like Watch How You Go, nearer the end. It would actually make sense for In Your Own Time to have swapped with Watch How You Go on the record because I think Watch How You Go would have been a nice s- transition into Seafog and the closing of the record. Um, I think it, it twinkles like some of the best parts of Hopes and Fears. Um, I've used twinkling a lot on this record which I think describes mm. the sound that they've been looking for from the mm. CP70. Um, I think on previous records it might have been produced in a less upbeat way, less of the big, you know, less of the the loud prominent drums in there um the backing vocals would have been toned down a little bit and um but yeah certain parts of the verse they're just so immediate and uh, i say nothing you say nothing um the refrain of it's not the way and it's just the way things are they it, they get into your head at the strange and it's times yeah and it's, it's got this strange structure as well that it hasn't got sort of you know, a lot of hopes and fears was you could sort of hit it with a hammer and it would divide neatly into four or eight yeah. bar phrases. And this has sort of the overlapping. It's it's more sort of complex songwriting in a way, I think. And and it's uh, yeah. it's kind of driven more about by the song than trying to fit notes into a certain set of bars or a certain set of sequences. Yeah, definitely. And it, it you get that a bit on Black Rain as well. But you know, on, the, on this, I think the development really of the songwriting definitely. Yeah. So to round it off drumming's finished now we've just got sea fog it's it's brilliant it's it's yeah it's the cloud of depression that's it's been effortlessly put into sound the description of that that kind of feeling it's such a sad song um i'm glad there's no percussion to me it feels like it's the natural successor to the way you want it and then alamond alamond is what i wrote down as well yeah um just the piano and the voice Voices, I should say, um, but I think it's better than both of those those aforementioned songs. It's the whole conceit of Sea Fog. I mentioned this cloud of depression. It's a very literal, um, a very literal way of relating that idea. Something that sweeps in and takes you away. Mm. Um, I think it almost has a sort of gospel vibe to it as well. Something sort of spiritual, almost. Yeah, to my ears. In the in those backing vocals of Jesse's. Uh, it's it's they're almost almost too much, um, I guess. But you know the the simplicity of the song is such that um, when they come in, they're very high in the mix. Um, they're slightly better live, I'd say, than they are produced on the record, just because of the way that the live mix works. Um, the whole the whole way that the song is put together, thematically and lyrically, has a real resonance. Um, it's it's just it completes the record for me, and I think there's 
there's so many ways in which you look back through the songs that are on the record and they they hold a mirror up to the last decade that the band have have have, have lived through and and I really love it for that it's quite strange I was just thinking about the last track on the other albums and they've all been you know Bedshift, The Frog Prince, Love is the End, they've all been quite big, rousing finishes, and this is a more, not tail between their legs, but more of a, a contemplative, is that yeah. the word, uh, finish, and you know, it's, it's a lot more reflective, certainly. Yeah, definitely. I'd, I don't know what you could infer from that. I, To be honest, there's nowhere else on the record that this could have gone, though. Mm. In some ways, I think the combination of Sea Fog, Watch How You Go, Black Rain. It is quite a bleak album compared to some of the other things they've put out. And, you know, I wondered, is that... They've said, you know, this album is very honest. And is is that honesty reflected, you know, reflecting the, that bleakness? But these are these are songs, you have to remember, that have been drawn from three-year periods mm. in life. I'm not. I'm not. In, I'm not inferring um, that the band are sort of depressed oh, no, or anything. No, no, I'm, I'm inferring. Not. I was just going to say that over the course of that kind of three years, anybody is going to go through a period where a song like Sea Fog is at the forefront of their mind, where where they are living that experience. And um, yeah, I think if it, if this is a true reflection of the songs that Tim has written over the three years, first of all, I think he's you know he's managed to put together. There's there's no lull in this record. There's no there's no track that you could say that's a bad track that shouldn't that doesn't deserve a place on the record. I think if you were to be very critical of perfect symmetry, you could go back and look at songs that were underdeveloped ideas that were stretched out further than the song could let them. I know um it's just I still like I still like the record. I don't want to I, I don't want to take part in this revisionism that says perfect symmetry was a failure. I think yeah, I think that would be a very silly thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm. I was personally. I mean, if we're talking about the album as a whole now, I think I have always been a fan of Keen doing something audacious, literally audacious. Yeah. Um. So I, I, you know, for me, under the INC, Perfect Symmetry, Night Train. You know, each of those is just better. You know, better than the last, and I, I genuinely believe that. And and so it's quite strange for it for this album not to be audacious. I haven't quite got my head around it. So if I'm not gushing about the whole thing it's probably because it's off the the path that you know keen have so far led for their albums which is funny and because it's, it's everybody else says this is them coming back to the path yeah and, and in a way it, it, i said it before but it is audacious by not being audacious yeah which i think brings us sort of ni- nice nicely and neatly through to this just this one final thought that i wanted to put out there um which is that in terms of it being an attempt to recreate um, the success of the first record, um, I was thinking about intros, basically. That if you look at the big um, singles that were put in place for um, for that first record, um, all those all those big singles, your everybody's changing, your summer only we know, they were put together in such a way that you had the piano all over them to start with. They, you know, you you go into everybody's change with that iconic. They, they grab your attention from the from the outset. And you look at the singles that we have, you know, already for this record. You have um, "Silence by the Night," which you get a little. You do get a little bit of that, mm. you know. Yeah. That sort of sense of the twinkling, but then 
twinkling again. But then you look at disconnected, which just comes in with a bit of a bit of p- drum and then voice. You look at Sovereign Light Cafe, a bit of drum and then voice. Um, through um, the the album opens with You Are Young, voice straight away. We don't really have those long intros that I think w- they serve to be a, a grab for the casual listener, where they're like, "Wow, what's this?" and then yeah. the song. I think that's a very good point. I mean, the, the, we talked at the start about sort of first impressions and and how you are young is sort of a slow burner in that sense, and it does kind of make me think that maybe you know maybe the the key to writing a, a great pop song is is just worry about the first ten seconds, and after that, it doesn't really matter. Possibly, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I, I do agree that you know it. I, as I said with the starting line, it would be such a shame if people heard the intro and thought, "Oh, that's not." If it's going to be like that, I'm not really interested. But actually, the choruses, it's just it would just blow them away. It is interesting though that you look at four out of the first five songs on this record, you don't have really an intro as such to speak mm. of to get people into it. Yeah. And you've made the point that it's an incredibly backloaded album in a sense. That you ha- you don't That's have where a lot the, of those the interesting songs are as well, and I, I think for those who are looking for the the obvious stuff, the front of this album they are going to find stuff there for them, the really obvious stuff. For those who really want something that's a little bit more interesting, the back of the album is going to be the place to go. It's almost as though there's two, you know, an album for both types of person who would be looking for this record. Mm. So maybe it's not that experimental or conservative an album. It's both conservative and experimental at the same time. Conservamental. Keen Top Tips. An upturned acorn makes an ideal hat for a Jesse Quinn action figure. So, last Monday, with thousands of bank holiday revellers out buying the album, the band celebrated by performing the first post-release show for Strangeland at the BBC's famous radio theatre in Central London. Yes, indeed. Um, it was a, a, a fantastic show, actually. I, by, um, I was lucky enough to be there, and uh, I've got to say, actually, I enjoyed it probably more than I enjoyed the Bexhill shows. Um, firstly, I had a chance to go home play the vinyl all the way through yep. um, get used to the songs that were there on the record um, It's a, first of all it's an amazing space, it's all seated velvet seats, yep. classic BBC kind of, you know, no expense spared um, Joe Wiley sort of presented the show um, they bashed through I think about 15 songs um, pretty much the, basically the Bexhill shows but sort of compressed to lose Black Rain um the band just seemed really happy actually to be playing, which I think was there was definitely a sense of I said last time on the podcast that things sometimes seem a little bit tense at the moment. But, but yeah, there was a, a genuine I think relief that the album was out there, and you know, cool. So I mean, having heard the record, you know what the intention was. You know, having spent three and a half years sort of making it, how do you think it came across live? I think um, one of the things that we um, sort of said in our review. Is that there are there are songs that work better live than they do on the the album itself, mm-hmm. which I think is good. Unfortunately, they didn't play Black Rain, which I did enjoy very much live. Um, I think it's a song. That it's an album that they enjoy playing live, mm-hmm. which is good. Um, 
they a fantastic reception. I love the little conceit that they have when they play Seafog. Um, at the start of Seafog, Richard climbs down from his drum kits, picks up his camera, and then comes to join the front row to watch the rest mm. of the band playing the song, which I think is quite cool. Whether they'll be able to do that when they're playing in enormo domes, I don't know. For a start, I mean, it's a good 100 metres from where Richard sits to the front row <laughs> when you're playing at the O2, so it's a, a long way to go. Um, yeah, Tom Tom seemed in, in good form. I think, um, actually, Tim uh, fucked up Seafog, uh, um, <laughs> which is always it's always endearing when Tim throws in what he calls one of his Les Dawsonisms. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was a, a really fun show, and um, a good a good way to get the record sort of launched. And um, thankfully, people will be able to hear it for themselves. <laughs> Beard Watch. Good evening. With the band in France today, the Beard Office has issued a severe beard warning for all members of the band as of 0700 BST this morning. There are warnings of beards for Tim, Jesse, Richard, Colin, Scott, and Beth. Tom is, however, expected to remain clear. And that's today's Birdwatch. So, that's all for this week's Beyond the INC. It's been quite a long one, hasn't it? It has indeed. I, um, I just want to throw out a very quick mention um, to... Uh, the guys at Keenshine who are doing a North American sort of tour blog. Basically, they're going to try and cover every date, uh, which is quite ambitious. Mm. Um, I think I've done my little plug for them. Uh, I think the address is keenshine.com. Um, thanks again for joining us uh, for Beyond the INC. If you'd like to get in touch with us, obviously there's the Twitter as usual, which is Beyond INC. And there's the mailbox, which is mailbox at beyondtheinc.com. Very good. <laughs> we will be back with you very soon. But for now, from Chris, goodbye. And from Andrew, goodbye.